many autoimmune diseases, there is some sort of catalyst with the gut, whether that's some type of dysbiosis, whether it's just, you know, some sort of gut damage, we don't really know. It's, um, haven't really drilled down on that yet. Um, but then, you know, food sensitivity is also, you know, so common. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high-performance mind, body, and lifestyle. Hey everyone, I hope you are well. I cannot believe it's nearly the end of March. Where has that first quarter gone? It seems to have gone so quickly. Um, I want to tell you first of all about a couple of places that you can connect with me if you haven't been there already. So the first is if you are a woman, because this is a specifically a women's group that I host over on Facebook, we have a wonderful community of women in my female biohacker Facebook group. And I go live in there every every week with Q&A. You can join me in the group itself or you can join me on Zoom. Um, you can ask me as many questions about health and wellness that you like. And sometimes I'll teach on a certain topic. So if you want to come and join our community, then just head over to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash female biohacker and come and join us. You can also just search for female biohacker in Facebook and you'll find it there as well. So I can't wait to connect with you in there. And the other thing I just started last week is actually a clubhouse room on a Thursday evening with my friends and fellow wellness experts, Nikki Sharp, Dr. Michelle Brody, who's a former guest on this show, and also Toby Huntington-Whiteley. And each week, at 7 at 6 p.m. UK that's um 1 p.m. Eastern. We are there for a whole hour taking all of your questions on health, fitness, wellness, biohacking, pretty much anything that you want to come and answer and ask us. So definitely head over to Clubhouse. We're there every week on a Thursday at 6 p.m. and I'd love to connect with you there. Just introducing you now to today's guest on the show. It is Phoebe Lapine. Phoebe is a food and health writer. She's a gluten-free chef, speaker, and the voice behind the award-winning blog, Feed Me Phoebe. She's been named by Women's Health Magazine as the top nutrition read of 2017. Phoebe's debut memoir, The Wellness Project, chronicles her journey with the autoimmune disease, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. She's also the host of the SIBO Made Simple podcast and author of the fourth coming book by the same name, which helps those newly diagnosed or chronically fighting small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Phoebe's work has appeared in Food and Wine, Marie Claire, Self, Glamour, Cosmopolitan, and Mind Body Green, who named her one of 100 women to watch in wellness. She lives in Brooklyn, New York with her husband and Beagle. She is such an expert in SIBO and I haven't had anyone on the show to talk about SIBO yet. It's um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth can be a really difficult thing to treat if you have it. And what's really, really interesting when I sat down with Phoebe is the link between SIBO and um, autoimmune diseases, particularly thyroid health, um, in particular Hashimoto's. So if you're suffering with any of these conditions, then I think you're going to get a ton of value from this episode today. Um, just a quick reminder before we get started that you can access all of the show notes and download the transcript and even watch with video over on my website www.angelafosterperformance.com forward slash podcast. We have also launched a new YouTube channel so if you want to go and watch the full episode there you can do that at um, Angela Foster Performance on YouTube as well. But let me now introduce you to Phoebe. 
So I am thrilled to be joined today by Phoebe Lapine. She is a gluten-free chef. She's an author. She has a fantastic new book that um, literally hit the shelves this year in 2021 one called SIBO Made Simple. Um, I have to say there are incredibly delicious, healthy tasting recipes in there, Phoebe. Um, I'm actually going to be testing out many of them myself. Um, So it's so great to have you here. I've got so many questions. First of all, a big welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm excited to hear what you make. Yes, I will keep you posted. I'll be sharing them as I do, as I share all my content on Instagram. So I will tag you. I'm sure my photos will not be as beautiful as yours, um, but I will give it my best shot. Um, so let's get started with a little bit for listeners to understand a little bit about your background and your story, because you've been on quite a journey yourself. Um, yes. From from the reading and research I've done, it started not with SIBO, but with Hashimoto's um, diagnosis, first of all. Is that right? Correct. Yes. When I was 22, a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's hard, isn't it? Because it's an autoimmune condition. Um, and I know that some, you know, some people, for example, will actually trip in and out of Hashimoto's with mm. graves. Um, and it's, it's difficult to control, particularly at such a young age, you expect your metabolism really to be functioning pretty well at 22, don't you? So how yeah. did you first get that diagnosis? What were your first symptoms there? So I actually had no symptoms that I really um, could drill down on. I was super lucky because my just regular um, adolescent doctor did a full thyroid panel. And I'm actually not sure how often she did them. I don't think it was every year. I suspect that I could have had it for a little bit longer, but who knows. Um, But I was really lucky that she caught it. But unfortunately, she isn't that holistically minded. So she didn't really give me a whole lot of information on what it was. I didn't know it was an autoimmune disease. I didn't even know like what a thyroid was at the time because I was so young. And I essentially was given the option of going on medication for the rest of my life. Um, And that didn't really seem to appeal to me. I guess I was mature enough to know that that wasn't necessarily the answer, but I wasn't mature enough to actually do any of the due diligence on the other options. So I just left the office and pretended the conversation never happened and went on living my life. Um, And then that's when the symptoms started to creep up. I kind of spent the next few years just like slowly wearing myself down to some sort of rock bottom. Um, I was working in food and I was private chefing and catering in New York, which is such an exhausting city, even if you don't have an incredibly physical job. But I did have a very physical job and there was a lot of schlepping and stress and just not, I just wasn't taking care of myself. I also really like to have fun. So I was just burning the candle at both ends. And eventually I started to lose my hair. My skin was a mess. I was just so tired all the time. Um, But I was having trouble sleeping. I had horrible insomnia, would get lots of night sweats. And then also like my, it was very clear, like my thermostat was way off. I'd be like, having to rip off my clothes, like coming up the subway steps because I just have these hot flashes. And I had to stop um, basically exercising because I would get such bad cramps when I would try to run. Um, And so that coupled with like being in pain, basically every time I ate, um, finally got me to start paying attention. And I went to go see a kind of a more holistic doctor. And he really explained to me kind of, you know, the diet side of things and put me on elimination diet. And I ended up taking gluten out of my diet, um, 
permanently still to this day. And yeah, that kind of brought me into the world of food as medicine. Ironically, I was not using my skill set in the kitchen um, to heal myself at all or, or to take care of myself really at all. Um, but then I would say like the pendulum kind of swung to the other side. Um, I started to get very obsessive and just bogged down by the kind of endless to-do list that a lot of autoimmune people are presented with in terms of limiting our toxic burden and like detoxifying our, our existence. And that was kind of when I had, you know, a big like come to Jesus moment and um, ended up doing this year long project that I wrote about in my last book, which was called The Wellness Project. And I just tried to kind of distill all of my wellness problem areas into buckets and decide on kind of like the, not the bare minimum, but the bare bones experiments that I needed to do in order to try and achieve those goals. And it was really just to try and see like what was worth my time, money, and energy. Um, to see like what really moved the needle physically, but then what also was kind of sustainable from an emotional standpoint. Um, so that's something I, I call healthy hedonism, which is very much informs my philosophy for everything, including SIBO. Um, but the experiment really did work. Like my, my antibodies were down and my thyroid numbers were way better by the end of the year. And, um, I was definitely just on a way higher playing field. I ironically did a lot of gut health research. I had a whole month dedicated to gut health. And um, so it was a real shock when a few years later, after the book came out, I was then diagnosed with SIBO because it is not, it was not something I had really come across in my research. And I kind of discovered that everything I was doing to kind of counteract some of the IBS symptoms that had been creeping back into my life was just like fueling the fire of this overgrowth. Mm. And so when you say, so you say you were diagnosed, you've done a lot of research into gut health previously, and then you got diagnosed with SIBO a few years later. What were your, did you have symptoms? I mean, I know you said yes. you didn't have symptoms with thyroid, but it'd be hard not to have symptoms with SIBO. What oh, were you yeah. experiencing? Yeah. So I would say, well, certainly kind of the whole IBS spectrum, like the, the cycle of diarrhea, constipation and the bloating was serious. But, you know, as I said, kind of throughout my experience with Hashimoto's, I definitely had a lot of GI issues. So, you know, it, it took a little while to get my attention, but one of the ones that really surprised me and like, was like, Hmm, this is strange was, um, the burping during meals. And we can talk a little bit more about SIBO mm -hmm. and what it is, but if you think about it, you know, when you have bacteria so far up your intestinal tract where it's not supposed to be, and it's releasing gas, it's kind of looking for any exit ramp and it's a bit further away than the usual exit ramp. So burping is kind of one of the strange symptoms that some people experience. And I definitely did. So so that got my attention eventually. <laughs> Is that um, kind of like the sort of, you, you see it occasionally people when they've got indigestion, the sort of compulsive burping that you would see where it's almost like each burp, like I've seen people with this where each burp they take, they burp and then it doesn't release it. It's almost like there's another one behind it and another one behind it and another one. Um, I didn't experience that personally. That could have something to do with it. Um, no, it's just more kind of like frequent burping kind of immediately once you start eating. Um, yeah, it was a strange one. <laughs> yeah. So, um, 
Let's talk about what SIBO is. So it's small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And you also talk in the book about a kind of subset of that, which is small intestinal fungal overgrowth Mm -hmm. as well, which is not uncommon. So for people listening, there's so many people with gut health, right? Such a um, endemic problem at the moment. Uh, what would, how would they know that they might have SIBO as opposed to gut issues that are lower down the intestinal tract? Yeah. So there's a real long list of symptoms that I have in my book. Um, of course the traditional symptoms of IBS, as I mentioned, gas, bloating, um, diarrhea or constipation or a mix of the two. But then because of kind of all the dysfunction that happens with SIBO, there can be kind of this whole subset of autoimmune issues. Um, So like brain fog, food sensitivities, joint pain, even skin issues. Um, And then of course, you know, weight, weight gain or weight loss, depending on what's overgrowing, um, anxiety, depression, just because of all of the dysfunction that happens in the gut as a result. Um, but I'd say as opposed to, you know, something that's going on lower down, it really would be kind of the location. So feeling that bloating kind of pressing against your ribs and also the frequency. So this is something that's directly related to when you eat. So it's not something that you may experience every once in a while. Um, that's probably probably more related to a food sensitivity or maybe, you know, an imbalance of certain types of bacteria that are used to break down certain foods. Um, but for SIBO people, it does tend to be frequent. Um, those are kind of the biggest, um, differentiators. Okay. And you talk about, um, like the link with autoimmunity quite a bit. So, um, and I know that you found with your audience, I think you mentioned in the book about how (laughs) your your mom complimented you on building such an impressive SIBO audience so quickly. And you were like, no, no, mom, that's the audience I had. They've all got SIBO too. Um, (laughs) I think there seems to be a link between autoimmune conditions and SIBO. And it's almost this double feedback mechanism. Yes. Can you enlighten people on that a little bit? Sure. So, I mean, there are tons of vicious cycles when it comes to SIBO. I mean, I've actually found it to be so fascinating. It's really educated me on a lot of overlapping conditions. And if you look at the list of kind of comorbidities or overlaps, like it is very long and there are a lot of autoimmune diseases on them. So essentially what people who just like hear gut health thrown around and like the wellness vernacular may not understand is that the majority of your bacteria are just in the large intestine. So there are some in the small intestine, but it is not an area of the digestive tract that was really designed to withstand any sort of population. They kind of don't really have a role there. Um, And that's because it's where you absorb your nutrients, where you, you know, actually reap the rewards of your food and, um, you know, essential nutrients pass through the intestinal wall into the bloodstream. So when there's bacteria at the table, it's competing for your nutrients, but then also, um, they can eat through your intestinal wall. There's kind of a thin mucus layer in the small intestine versus a much thicker mucus layer in the large intestine, because that's the area that's kind of designed to withstand bacteria, large amounts. Um, so on the other side of that wall is your immune system. So when, you know, that breach happens, then your immune system is in contact with, you know, these organisms that are not yourself. So there's no tolerance there. And by the way, I should preface this that 
you know, the bacteria in SIBO aren't necessarily quote unquote bad bacteria. It's really just a a location issue, not a type issue. Although sometimes bad bacteria can be the catalyst that starts the whole SIBO mess to begin with, but we can get into that a little bit later. Um, But then it's that kind of leaky gut issue, the damage to the tight junctions of the intestinal wall that can create kind of the feedback loop with autoimmunity. Um, Because then, you know, larger particles of food or the bacteria themselves, as your immune system, you know, starts to try and attack and break off, you know, small pieces of bacteria that can then get on into the bloodstream. That's kind of when systemic inflammation um, can happen. Obviously there's a lot of local inflammation happening first and foremost, just from the gases themselves, the gases themselves that the bacteria release are inflammatory and are damaging. Um, so that's kind of how SIBO might cause autoimmune disease, but then and, you know, there's kind of a lot of, of issues just with autoimmune disease itself. I mean, usually not usually, but many autoimmune diseases, there is some sort of catalyst with the gut, whether that's some type of dysbiosis, whether it's just, you know, some sort of gut damage, we don't really know it's, um, haven't really drilled down on that yet. Um, but then, you know, food sensitivities also, you know, so common with, um, autoimmune diseases and some level of leaky gut often is too. And any sort of kind of damage to your ability to move food through the intestines properly, which is this, um, system called the migrating motor complex. That's, um, fueled by your nerve cells. That's kind of one big bucket of why people get SIBO. And though there hasn't been, you know, a whole lot of research to validate, you know, exactly what goes wrong with certain conditions and the migrating motor complex, we see that specifically with the autoimmune diseases that affect gut health. So celiac, IBD, so that's Crohn's and colitis have a huge overlap with SIBO. And I'd assume it's because of, you know, just the ongoing inflammation and damage that can cause issues with with the motility. So your ability to kind of street sweep excess food, bacteria, whatever's coming in through the nose and mouth through the intestines in in an efficient way. Okay, cool. So let's, if we just kind of back up just a little bit, just so I can write that down, because there's so much, so much information there for people. So with SIBO, what we're saying is it's not necessarily um, that they have bad bacteria, it can be, but that it's in and this is really to do with the ileocecal valve at the bottom, isn't it? So we've got the, the, the bacteria from the large intestine are actually um, leaking up into the small intestine, which should be pretty much clear or clearish of bacteria. So yeah, so that's only one example. That could, okay. that could be one dysfunction, but there are so many other underlying causes. But yes, you're absolutely right. The ileocecal valve is kind of a back door that, when working properly, um, means that there's never any backflow. Um, but you know, on the list of SIBO um, root causes in kind of like the structural bucket, um, that's definitely one of them. And some people, you know, have to have their ileocecal valve removed. Moved. And, you know, that's kind of one of the underlying causes that, you know, it's a little hard to overcome because you just do not have that protection. Um, but no, usually with the migrating motor complex, that's kind of what carries food through the small intestines into the large intestine. It's kind of like a dishwasher after a meal. So there's peristalsis, that kind of muscular um, propulsion that moves food through, but then the street sweeper mechanism kind of just like 
cleans the decks afterwards. And it's said that when that breaks down, that's when a lot of debris can accumulate. Because if you think about it, the small intestine is, is huge. It's, I don't know why it's called the small intestine. It's got more, a larger surface area than a football field, um, an American football field. I don't know what um, the football field is over there. Um, and yeah, there's just a lot of opportunities and nooks and crannies for any sort of debris to accumulate. And, you know, once it does, if those are food particles that just gives, um, you know, more food for any bacteria that makes it past the first few legs of the digestive labyrinth, um, to kind of feast on and proliferate. Mm -hmm. And, um, okay. So some of the other causes, let's touch on those, because if we're looking at causes, we can, we can see that one of them might be a problem with the valve. What are the other causes that might food intolerances can affect the integrity of the gut lining, which you've touched on there? What are some of the other things that could cause could could low stomach acid also Mm. cause that because we're not then killing the bacteria that's coming in at the top? Exactly. Um, Okay. yeah. So that's kind of a first bucket. Um, And, you know, some practitioners will consider that more of a risk factor than like the actual catalyst. But there is, you know, a lot of evidence that being on proton pump inhibitors, which reduce stomach acid does have put you at much higher risk for SIBO. Um, So yeah, so any deficiency and kind of the natural antimicrobial substances that we make, so stomach acid, and then, you know, bile acids and pancreatic enzymes and everything that's kind of going on in the small intestines. Um, or any sort of deficiency with your immune system. Because again, you know, your immune system is designed to ward off any sort of invader um, that does make it. So those are kind of your protections in terms of just dealing with everyday bacteria that come in through the nose and mouth, which, you know, we're exposed to bacteria at all times. um, And we need all these substances, um, especially our immune system, as we've come to intimately know in the world of COVID, um, to make sure that none of these things take hold. Um, So that would be kind of one one bucket. Then the migrating motor complex or a motility issue would be another bucket. And there are a lot of conditions that will overlap with that. So Hashimoto's is one of them, which I can get into. And then the third bucket would be the structural issues. So, you know, more concrete things like the ileocecal valve or some sort of kink or blockage. Um, But then also just anything that's kind of bearing down on your organs and causing them to not, you know, move as freely or function properly. And that could be anything from like a tumor that you might not know about to just kind of scar tissue from a laparoscopic, um, abdomen surgery that just forms on the inside without you even knowing. It's just kind of, unfortunately, um, a side effect that people don't really talk about enough. You may have just a small scar on the outside, but on the inside, your fascia have kind of reorganized themselves and maybe pulling or pushing um, your intestines and essentially kind of putting pressure on them so that a four-lane highway becomes a two-lane highway. Um, And I'd say, you know, most people with SIBO have kind of root causes in several of these buckets. You know, usually it's not just one thing. If you have, you know, a motility issue, maybe that only becomes a problem if the bacteria aren't killed because you are lacking something in, you know, the first bucket of either stomach acid or maybe for a lot of women, you've had your gallbladder removed, um, then you're missing essential bile acids. And then also potentially you've had a laparoscopic surgery in your abdomen. So that's affecting things as well. Yeah, so there's so many. 
um, potential causes. You yeah. also talk about um, while we while we you mentioned hormones there. Um, let's just touch on that because you talk about the link with um, things like endometriosis, and obviously that often results in laparoscopic surgery. Yeah, as it did for me. Um, and you talk about the estrobolum. So let's just touch on that as well because I think that's helpful for people, particularly for female listeners, to understand. Yeah, unfortunately, endometriosis, you kind of have like feed in both buckets because, you know, it is kind of an inflammatory condition. And then, of course, as you mentioned, a lot of the time surgery is associated with it. And, you know, a lot of people then also have kind of hormone imbalances as a result. Um, so I'll give actually the Hashimoto's example because it's the one that I know more intimately. But um, here's just one example, which is, you know, your active thyroid hormone T3 um, versus the inactive thyroid hormone T4, which is honestly what most people get in the form of medication. Um, so if you do not have, you know, a gut that is functioning like on all cylinders, you're going to have trouble with that essential conversion of T4 to T3. And then T3 is so essential for so many functions in the body, including producing stomach acid and also fueling the migrating motor complex. Um, so if you don't have enough T3, um, most people with Hashimoto's um, who, you know, numbers are off also struggle with B12, which is, um, you know, part of the offshoot of T3. And then B12 is what you really need to fuel the migrating motor complex. And that's why, you know, a lot of people have brain fog or are just prone to constipation or stagnation um, who have Hashimoto's. And then, you know, if you have some sort of um, hormone imbalance like estrogen dominance, that's going to make the, the conversion even tougher from T4 to T3. And estrogen dominance, I think, is a really important one to look at because a lot of women suffer from it. Um, but that's going to mean that your liver is not probably functioning um, properly. And that's going to really, really be tough in terms of kind of regulating your hormones overall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it all kind of interlinks together. It all interlinks. Yes. Yeah. Which is why it's so important. And it all, as you say, like, it's very clear, um, like just how important gut health is to all of this, even yeah. to your hormone levels, your thyroid function um, and everything else. Because otherwise so, it just becomes a vicious cycle, you know, mm. it just keeps on going and going and going. It's one of the reasons why I actually wish I had gone onto the medication originally, because, you know, now I understand that I was really just digging myself into more and more of a hole. Had I at least had something to, you know, get a foothold, even if it was just, you know, synthetic T4, T3, um, I think it would have helped me. I mean, I'm glad for the experience as a result, you know, this is where I was meant to be, but, um, I do think that it is an argument for, you know, not to discount medication or feel like it's a failure to just let it help you. Mm. I think that's the thing with medication is I think when it's used, um, in the short term, that's the thing. I think medication is really designed for short-term use to facilitate some sort of healing. You know, the body will yeah. heal itself given the best opportunity, um, but sometimes we need medication in between. Yeah. Um, but I think that um, what's interesting as well is you talk a little bit in the book about histamine intolerance. Mm -hmm. And this is a growing thing that just is gathering more pace. I, I, it's hard to work out whether more people are suffering with histamine intolerance or whether we're just actually better now at identifying and talking about it. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's becoming a kind of growing issue, particularly around women, particularly women around perimenopause as well, I notice. Mm -hmm. 
Um, what have you found in terms of histamine intolerance and SIBO? Yeah. So there's a really concrete link um, for several reasons. So first and foremost, bacteria carry their own histamine load. And I'll just say for people who aren't familiar that histamine is a completely natural part of the body. It's something we need kind of like the lesson of SIBO in itself is that it's all just about keeping things in balance. Once, you know, certain levels um, go off the rails, same thing with hormones, then, you know, certain functions will go awry. But, you know, it's not like we could function as human beings without histamine. Um, so one of the things that makes the levels go up in SIBO is just the bacteria themselves. They have their own histamine. And then you kind of ingest histamine every single day through certain foods. Um, the big guns would be <laughs> wine, beer, any sort of fermented alcohol, but any sort of fermented food or aged food. Um, and then certain vegetables just carry their own load of histamine and other vegetables are histamine liberating foods. So they kind of allow um, more histamine to go into circulation. So in addition to the added load of um of the bacteria themselves, when there's damage to um, the villi of the, of the intestines, that's where you produce an enzyme called DAO that helps to break down histamine. So kind of with all these functions of the body, there's always, you know, some sort of check and balance to make sure that you stay, you know, at the proper level. And that enzyme is the check and balance for histamine. So when there's damage there, you're not going to make, make enough of that enzyme. So the levels are going up. You're like the levels of whatever controls it are going down. And then for a lot of people who try and experiment with a low FODMAP diet and, you know, take out certain vegetables that may be exacerbating symptoms, um, end up focusing on vegetables that are actually tend to be higher in histamine. Um, it's just kind of a coincidence. It's not, you know, anything specifically about the grouping of vegetables, but, you know, things like tomatoes, spinach, um, and also just like various, well, alcohol and canned foods too, but, you know, just certain vegetables that you may be just increasing the volume of as you decrease your variety, um, could add more flame to the fire. Mm. I also, what's interesting about histamine intolerance as well, I think a lot of people don't, don't, um, fully appreciate is that the histamine in food increases the longer you leave it. So if you're somebody that is yeah. um, prone to kind of batch cooking and then reheating food, you're actually exposing yourself to more histamine, aren't you? If you go into a supermarket and buy something that's prepackaged, even like, you know, um, something that's on the shelf that's ready to eat, but it's been there stored for a longer time, you're more likely to get a histamine yeah. reaction than food that is prepared very fresh. Exactly. Um, and that's really important to rec to remember too, you know, if you get nervous about seeing the list of histamine foods to take out, usually, you know, a tomato is a perfect example. A fresh tomato may not be an issue for you. Canned tomato or tomato sauce, like those are going to just exacerbate the histamine count of a vegetable that's already kind of higher in histamine. Already. Yeah. Um, okay. And then let's talk then a little bit about the connection with candida and fungal um, issues. How, how would this be showing up for someone and how would they be able to identify that it's not just a bacterial issue there or, you know, um, a lack of integrity with the gut lining, but actually they've got a fungal problem? Yeah. So it's actually very difficult to do because um, the symptoms 
that show up are fairly similar and also kind of the root causes are similar. So if you think about it, everything that we've talked about, all those buckets are really structural, not structural issues. There's that one bucket, but they're, they're issues with the the natural functions within the body. Um, and those functions can cause anything to overgrow. So not just bacteria, but anything that's opportunistic, anything that's coming in through the nose and mouth and not getting killed. And fungi and yeast definitely fall into that category. So it's said that actually 50% of all people with SIBO have some sort of fungal overgrowth as well. Um, 25% have just SIBO and 25% just have CFO. So CFO is just small intestine fungal overgrowth. Um, um, but then there are kind of other issues that could be happening with candida. So that's kind of the acute overgrowth. But then, you know, again, because these things are not us, even though they naturally occur in the body, um, you could have some sort of immune reaction or kind of, yeah, that's the best way to describe it, an immune reaction to the overgrowth um, where your body truly becomes kind of intolerant of um, yeast and fungi. So there are a bunch of things to explore. Um, one of the best and easiest ways I think to differentiate is to simply do kind of a three to four day diet test. It doesn't have to be along with a lot of these things with SIBO diets. It's not, um, well, in some, again, there's the one subset of the yeast and candida that is immune related, but, um, mo for most things you can kind of see the results within a digestive cycle. It's like you're, reacting kind of immediately to these foods. Um, so the, by the way, there's a similar test that you can do with histamine. Um, a lot of the yeast and candida, uh, foods that are issues because of kind of the aging, as you mentioned, have a big overlap with high histamine foods. Um, so I think that's kind of the best way is to just take out some of the bigger guns there and then add them in and see if you react. Cause that could be, you know, something that really tells you, Oh, I'm, I'm reacting to mold and yeast and food. I probably have have some sort of issue um, with that in my body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how, how would someone go about doing that then when you say you can do it within sort of three or four days? Is this doing an elimination protocol? Basically? Yeah, it's an elimination protocol, but it's a pretty quick one. Um, so there's a list of foods in my book if you want to try it. Um, a lot of yeast and candida protocols, you know, will tell you to like limit your carbs, like not even any starchy vegetables or grains and whatnot. Um, from the practitioners who I spoke with who are really savvy on, you know, small intestine fungal overgrowth and, you know, the overlapping issues with SIBO, um, didn't think that was necessary. Kind of like the real things that tell you are the mold and yeast containing foods. Um, and then for histamine, yeah, the high histamine containing foods. The highest doing ones. Um, now, in terms of once somebody to to actually identify whether you have SIBO, then the analysis is done usually through a hydrogen breath test. Is that yes. right? Yes. Yes. Um, so it, yeah, it's an interesting process. It takes a bit of forethought and planning, um, a special diet kind of 24 hours before then fasting 12 hours before, and then you drink a sugar solution the morning of, and essentially breathe into a tube every 15 to 20 minutes. Every lab kind of does it a little bit differently. And then they essentially measure the gases in your breath, um, back at the lab. And that tells them, well, the hypothesis is that the only thing that could be producing these gases is bacteria. So they're seeing where along the journey of the sugar solution, there is something eating it and releasing gas. And if it happens too soon, kind of within the first two hours, um, and it's 
above a certain threshold, then you'll get diagnosed with SIBO. And um, it could be either hydrogen or methane or hydrogen sulfide. That's kind of the main gas that's produced. Um, and that'll give you a better indication of what kind of medication you need to treat it. Mm-hmm. And that's, see, that's, that moves nicely onto the treatment protocol, because there are kind of three main protocols that you talk about in the book yeah. in terms of antibiotics, herbal antimicrobials, and then the elemental diet, which is not really a diet as such as it is more yeah. of a, a medical style shake. And I know it's very helpful in the book because you talk about the prices involved for people actually to treat in this way um, and also what it involves. But just to summarize for people so they can then buy the book and like go into a bit more depth <laughs> if they're struggling with it. Um, obviously there are pros and cons to each of these protocols. And I think a lot of people are immediately like antibiotics. I definitely don't want to be taking those um, with good reason in many cases. Um, Can you just explain the sort of differences, the headline differences between those three protocols and also the success rates with each of them, really? Yeah. So the conventional antibiotics and the herbs um, actually have similar success rates. Um, They've been studied. Certain herbal compounds have been studied. measured against the antibiotics and they performed kind of how practitioners have known they performed for many years, which is just as well. So, um, I will say, so there are several antibiotics that are used for SIBO. Um, but the one just for hydrogen is actually not a conventional antibiotic. It really just targets the small intestine. And, um, there have been studies that it does not impact the large intestinal microbiome at all, which is great. Um, so that's not one to fear. It does tend to be more expensive. So that's just something to keep in mind if you don't have good insurance and your, or your insurance doesn't cover it. Um, you may want to just go with another route with the herbs. Um, if you have methane SIBO, unfortunately you kind of need an extra agent. So you tack on, you know, one of the actual conventional antibiotics, which does unfortunately have a negative impact on your large intestine. Um, or there's, um, Allicin, which is a derivative of garlic, um, but a derivative that's just kind of the antimicrobial powerhouse. It doesn't really um, cause any symptoms dietarily in the same way that garlic does for some people. Um, But that's kind of the added agent that a lot of people use for methane who take the herbal route. Um, And the herbs, you know, are obviously, quote unquote, more natural, but they are not benign. A lot of people have, you know, intense side effects on them. I mean, they're really doing a lot of dirty work, a lot of killing. Um, And then the elemental diet is really not something that sounds like fun to me. You drink, as you said, a medical shake essentially for two weeks um, as your sole source of nutrients. And essentially, you know, because the nutrients are at their most elemental state, they just kind of absorb immediately upon reaching the intestines. So it doesn't really give a chance for the bacteria to feast on anything. So that's kind of the starvation technique. And, you know, some people just want to get it done. It has the highest success rate, but again, it's, it's a bit more intense for your lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. So it's a decision-making there, but it's, it's notoriously difficult to treat, isn't it? So um, in terms of success rate protocols, like you say, the antibiotics and the herbal antimicrobials are similar. What kind of success rate do they have? And I guess it, some of this depends on how, um, complicit the client or the patient is with it, right? And how compliant they are with the protocol. Yeah. So I don't have the statistics right off the top of my head, but um, they're definitely, you know, in the 80% range, like they are very effective. Um, the reason why a lot of people have chronic SIBO is just that they don't necessarily 
deal with the root cause. So it comes back. Um, and then the second is that sometimes people have such high gases that one round of any treatment is not going to do it. So the reason why the elemental diet is so popular is that, well, it, it's not that popular. <laughs> I take that back. But the reason why someone might want to do the elemental diet is that it has um, kind of the highest ability to reduce your gases by the biggest number. So let's just say your gases are 90. Um, the antibiotics and the herbs will only reduce those by 30 at a time. So if you're at 90, you know that you're going to have to do several rounds or you can do one round of the elemental diet and potentially, you know, get yourself all the way there. Okay. And after those treatment protocols, um, what do you recommend in terms of putting in from your research to putting back in place to, to sort of optimize the health of the gut? Um, do you recommend sort of a combination of pre and probiotic rich foods or specific things to try and then enhance? Obviously, in the small intestine, you're not really trying to encourage anything, but some of those protocols will have had an effect on yeah. the lower intestinal tract. Absolutely. So a lot of doctors will try and, you know, start incorporating those things after treatment. I think it's important to go really slow. Um, from a nutrition standpoint, I know a lot of people, again, because of the histamine issues potentially will struggle with some of the the probiotic foods that a lot of people recommend, like fermented foods. Um, so it's something that can absolutely be added in, but I would just recommend going slowly. I think that the most important area to pay attention to post-treatment is just healing the leaky gut. That's, you know, something that can kind of, not that it can only happen after treatment and after the bacteria are gone, but if you think about it, you know, the bacteria are actively working against you if they're present. Um, so that's, and they've caused, you know, a lot of damage along the way. So, you know, doing things like supplementing with L-glutamine or turmeric or vitamin D. There's kind of a whole list in the medicine cabinet section of the book on supplements that deal with um, leaky gut, but um, in foods, just upping if so long as histamine's not an issue, um, collagen, turmeric again in your cooking, and then L-glutamine is naturally found in cabbage. So um, if you can juice some cabbage or just get some cabbage in your diet in a way that won't make you feel bloated. Um, and of course, you know, once you can have fermented foods, um, sauerkraut's a great way, or even sometimes you can buy just the kraut juice. Um, those are fantastic ways to kind of help support the gut. And what have you found in terms of like, um, you, you talk about, about um, a low FODMAP diet. Have you found that the FODMAP foods are often like things that people are intolerant to and that they need to exclude the long-term or just while they're trying to get the SIBO under control? Um, usually just trying to get the SIBO under control. Um, I think a big misconception is, you know, that the symptoms are directly correlated to how well the treatment's going. Um, the reality is that, you know, your bacteria, um, react to certain foods more than others, um, those being the high FODMAP foods. So oftentimes, you know, if you eat one of those foods and you have some sort of reaction, your brain tells you like, oh my God, the SIBO is raging, the SIBO is back, um, which isn't always the case. Um, 
a lot of people who do the reintroduction properly and really test kind of all the different buckets may find that there's one or two, you know, that seem to be more problematic than others. But I'd say the vast majority of people are able to integrate most things again. Um, and especially once, you know, the SIBO is dealt with and once the gut is healed, a lot of those foods will come back in. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, I mean, the book's incredible. I can't, I can't recommend it highly oh, enough. You, you talk about how to, yeah, it's a really good book. And you talk about how to manage pain, um, how to help enhance detoxification. It's a really, really thorough protocol. And the, as I say, the recipes and things in there are really delicious as well. So um, where can people find it? Obviously, they can get the book on Amazon and any of the bookstores. Where can they find out more about you, Phoebe? Um, where are you most active in terms of your content and your social media? Yeah. So if you go to feedmephoebe.com, that's where I have a lot of free resources on SIBO and tons of recipes, not all of them low FODMAP or, um, you know, SIBO friendly, because I've been doing this for a while, but you can find lots of great options to get a sense of my, my food there. And also a link to my podcast, which is also called SIBO Made Simple. Um, and then if you go to SIBOMadeSimple.com, that's where you can find links to a lot of retailers. I think they're only US retailers though, but if you buy the book anywhere, you can submit your receipt and you can get a free five-day gut heal boot camp, um, which is a fun way to kind of put some of the teachings of the book quickly into practice and break it down for you. And there's also a great Facebook group um, with lots of SIBO amigos there. And then I'm on Instagram. You know, that's probably where I'm, I'm most active and I'm just at my name, Phoebe Lapine. Amazing. I will link to all of that in the show notes. Thank you Thanks. so much for coming on the Thank show today. You. It's been really, really lovely um, to have you and talk to you and just hear all your in-depth knowledge, both on SIBO and on, on thyroid function. So thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for giving the book such a good read. <laughs> it's very good. I definitely recommend it. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. Um, if you know of somebody who's struggling with Hashimoto's or SIBO or gut health, then please share this episode with them. And also you can access all of the show notes, the transcript and everything we talked about today over on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com forward slash podcast. And I also want to tell you, I've got a very exciting new series coming up all on women's health. I've interviewed the world's top experts in women's health, and I can't wait to bring you this series. So if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And I look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.